Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. And now, AJ and Chris Shepard. Our next guest is a real estate entrepreneur focused on large-scale multifamily syndications. He is a managing partner at Momentum Multifamily, and he began his career in real estate, renovating and managing rental units with his father at a young age. Here to discuss systems development and processes in acquiring large multifamily units, asset management, and creating a brand for the properties they acquired. Let's welcome Hayden Harrington. All right. Today we have Hayden Harrington with us. He is founder and managing partner of Momentum Multifamily. Hayden, thanks so much for coming on the show. You know, we usually start out by asking you like, how did you get into real estate? Like what kind of brought you here today? Yeah, great question. And just thank you guys again for the invite on the show. Excited to be here. I kind of got dragged into real estate at a very young age. My dad, he was an engineer and invested in rental properties when I was real young. So as a teenager, you know, I would get dragged into his fix and flips and rentals and we would rehab them together. You know, him being an engineer, he'd like to figure out how things worked. And as a byproduct, never trusted contractors, always wanted to do the work himself. And so it was just me and him rehabbing and managing these single family homes. So got exposed to it at a real young age and really enjoyed it, especially the process of learning, you know, what's behind the walls, what's under the floors, how do you add value? Where does that line of profitable versus unprofitable investment start to come into play and those sorts of things? I really got hooked at a very young age. But the one thing that I learned as a result of that was, you know, I wanted to go bigger. You know, there's a lot of challenges that come along with single family rentals and you know, we had some great tenants, but we also had some that were not so great. And in those situations where you're either 100% occupied or you're zero, and if you get that bad tenant in there, can really make life pretty challenging. You know, we had tenants that just skipped out in the middle of the night. We had some that stole appliances for us, and it's like, there goes all our cash flow. And then on top of that, you know, the work, it's fun to learn, but it's backbreaking work, it takes a long time, especially if you're doing it all yourself. So ultimately, you know, made the decision to try to make the jump to commercial and just try and navigate and understand that game. Well, that is a very familiar story. Literally, when you were mentioning dad taking you to properties when you were a kiddo, like AJ and I were both, you know, cleaning out tenants that left in the middle of the night, painting, well, putting like seals on flat roofs. Redoing, <laughs> redoing tile bathrooms, like all sorts of stuff. You know, that one time I got suspended from school, dad put me to work, a little <laughs> indentured servitude. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, honestly, I feel like we had a very similar childhood growing I think up. What, what Chris is trying to say is he already feels connected, even though we've only been talking for a few minutes. So <laughs> we've got very similar backgrounds with our dad. He did a lot of buy and hold, but, you know, flipped them a little bit too. So 
Well, cool. Well, so now you're here and you've found multifamily. I think you're out of Houston, right? Yeah, correct. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. Yeah. So, you know, full-time commercial real estate, multifamily investor, currently have just under 900 units around the Houston market. And then we're under contract for another 257. So we'll have about 1,150 units in the Houston suburbs. Uh, I'm partnered up with my business partner, Dustin Miles. He's out of Fort Worth. I was up in Dallas for almost the last 10 years and recently moved back down to Houston where I'm originally from. But we met up and linked up about four and a half years ago. And that's when we started to, we came together and founded Momentum. And so we've been kind of off and running ever since. It was challenging to get started. We were initially teamed up in 2019. And then we spent the first year underwriting deals, learning how we work together and just kind of understanding each other. And we ran a meetup up in Dallas. That was a great kind of dating process to make sure we were the right fit to come under the same flag, which I think is a really important step for any partnership. You got to really know and trust, you know, who you're getting in business with. I always like to say multifamily's marriage. You know, you're married to your partners and you're married to your properties. These are long-term investments. So, you know, you got to really think wisely about who you want to team up with. And, you know, the meetup was, it served a great purpose for us to get to know each other. And then also, you know, educate investors, you know, prop us up as authority figures, build an investor base that we could then, you know, raise equity from once that deal came down the road. So that was kind of how we got started together. And then it was kind of interesting path to the first deal. It took us about a year to get an offer accepted, but we had that offer accepted in March of 2020. So for those of you that don't remember, that's when the whole world shut down because a global pandemic hit. So that was an interesting time. You know, we didn't know to be excited or terrified at the same time. You know, thankfully we were in between LOI and PSA. So we weren't, you know, we didn't have any hard earnest money or anything like that. And we could walk away, but we tabled that just to kind of see what was going on and, you know, ended up making a shift to a little bit newer assets as the pandemic went on because historically my partner had done all BNC assets. 70s and 80s vintage deals. And that's what we were looking at, you know, all through 2019 and early 2020. But as soon as the pandemic hit, we really started to ask the questions of how do we mitigate risk and where's the opportunity? So we saw risk for, you know, there's a couple different ways you can mitigate risk. You can buy a newer property that has better bones. So the likelihood of something going wrong is lessens, especially with- So before you get in too deep to explaining or like talking about mitigating risks, what do you see as risk in multifamily? You know, the biggest risk is disjointed team. This is a team sport. And if you don't have your operations really tight, not only between, you know, your team with your partnership and then your team at the asset level, if that's disjointed or you're not hands-on, it can spiral out of control extremely quickly. So I'd say that's the biggest risk, especially if I'm a passive investor looking at, hey, who do I want to invest with? If it's a group that isn't very big, but you know their focus is scattered, they're looking all over the country. That's a huge red flag for me because you know just week to week, let alone month to month, these assets have a lot of moving parts. And if you're not hands-on, it's so easy for stuff to fall through the cracks. You know, you've got to know what your team's doing and implementing. And if you're spread out across the country, just tracing yields on paper, you know, then 
you know, there's a high likelihood that things are going to fall through the cracks and, you know, you're not going to be able to hit those investment projections. So that's the number one thing for me personally, when identifying risk is, you know, just the team that is involved in putting these projects together. Yeah, I completely agree. You got to sponsor risk. (laughs) So when it comes Oh, I was just going to say Brian Burke's book is like, you know, more so than, you know, identifying a good deal. It's identifying a good sponsor. That's really in the property management and the actual, you know, capital project that happens on most value ads is where the money's made. Even any deal can look good on paper, but like actually being able to perform on it is what really counts is I think what you're saying, right? Yeah, 100%. You could have a good deal, but with a bad sponsorship team, it turns out to be a terrible investment. So the team is, you know, betting on the jockey more than anything. And then after that, it, you know, the deal on the location. So Hayden, like you were kind of jumping into kind of asset level risk though, like as a sponsor and talking to, you know, other real estate professionals who want to be sponsors, how should they be viewing risk in your opinion, when it comes to looking at an asset or looking at a location or betting team um, Yeah. You know, when we're looking at deals and trying to identify potential risks to that, you know, the biggest one I'd say is that rent story, you know, that path to pushing rents to hitting your pro forma, that's, you know, got to be achievable. So for us, you know, if a deal gets sent our way and it's leading the sub market in terms of effective rents, it's something we're not interested at all because, you know, leading the pack puts you in the riskiest position. So we want a clear path to be able to push those rents in a you know, we want to understand that this submarket can actually support those pro forma rents that we're projecting. Otherwise, we don't like to guess. We like we like data. We like what is this submarket actually doing, and it, what is it, you know actually achievable. What sort of supply is coming online? How many competitors do you have? Those sorts of things. But I think just you know when looking and analyzing a deal, that rent story, and you know what the effective rents are at the, the comparable properties is a really important thing to hone in on. Yeah, we completely agree as well. So being the managing partner, you'd mentioned that your kind of main roles are acquisitions and asset management. Which one do you like the most? And like, what do you feel like is your secret sauce? Yeah, great question. You know, I like both. On the front end, I like chasing deals and talking with brokers, but I think what's really become a passion of mine is, you know, post-close operations, working extremely closely with our teams and developing a culture across all our properties that, you know, people are excited to come to work. And that's what gets me really excited, getting to see the impact that we can have as a team on the tenants' lives, especially when we're buying assets that have typically had some sort of neglect and you know, there's room to add value to them. And the tenants really, really appreciate that. So for me, I really like the kind of post-close operations aspect of it. How do we systematize? How do we streamline everything? How do we make sure that our employees are being cared for and have the right tools at their disposal to be able to be successful in the first place? So that's what I really love. A big part of our business plan as a whole so our Houston brand is called the Henry. It's, it's named after Dustin, my partner's son, which is really cool. But it allows us to effectively roll out a similar business plan across all of the properties that we're buying because we're first-gen value adds, early to mid-2000s product. So they all look very similar. It's a very similar business plan. But then from an operations standpoint too, it allows us to 
say, okay, we're going to test something at this one asset. If it goes well, we're going to roll it out to the whole portfolio so that we don't have to even think twice about what are we doing at this asset versus this one and so forth. It's all streamlined. It's all the same. And then it allows our managers and our regionals to cross-train everybody. We can pull help from properties if we need to. So really like just thinking through of, you know, where else can we increase efficiencies across our portfolio and then just, you know, routinely checking in on all the assets and with our team, make sure everything's going the way we intended to. If I could ask, what's something you tried out and worked? And then also what's something you tried out and didn't work? Yeah, good question. So, you know, one of the things that we've really been developing was a structure around our, we have Monday morning reports, Monday morning meetings with all of our managers and regional. And so as we grew and as we added assets, we had to figure out a way that we could streamline that. So it worked at scale. And then it also worked once we plug in asset managers to run those meetings with our managers and then can report back to us. So, you know, at first it was a little disjointed and, you know, we'd kind of bounce all over the place. Sometimes a single asset would take 30, 45 minutes to get through updates because we just didn't have structure around meetings. And, you know, we tried one evolution was we tried a PDF where they would pull different reports and then they would send them to us and then we'd go through them. But that ended up having, you know, a dozen different reports our managers were looking at and it was just taking a lot of time. And, you know, we got it down to actually an Excel spreadsheet that we have all our managers go through that, you know, we walk through now every meeting, we have a general tab where we go over, you know, how are our people doing? Are, do we have any open positions or do we have any temporary hires on right now? We go through, you know, what events are planned for residents in the month and, you know, any capital projects. And so we just go down and then we go over to like renewals, revenue, delinquency. So we just work through each of these tabs and all of our managers fill this out Monday morning and send it to us prior to the calls. So there's a lot of structure around it. And at a glance, we can figure out, okay, what needs attention and what's doing well sort of thing. And then as we add in asset managers, they can run those and then, you know, report back to us as well. Because, you know, if you have a dozen or 20 plus properties, you know, once you get to that level, you're going to have to have a lot of structure and a lot of systems around that information, getting from that manager up to the principals and to make sure that, you know, everything's going in the right direction sort of thing. So that was one thing that it kind of did both. It, it did work and it didn't at first because at first it was just kind of a, all over the place and we were, you know, chit-chatting and just taking everybody's time. And it kind of evolved into a place where there's a lot of great structure and, you know, it puts a lot of accountability on our managers too. You know, they know we're watching. They know that we're going to show up to the properties, sometimes announced, sometimes not announced. And so we put a lot of accountability on our teams to make sure that, you know, they're doing what they should be doing. And just so our listeners, do you guys do the property management on it? Or when you're talking about managers, is that the property manager reporting to you on Mondays? Yeah. So that's the property manager reporting to us. So we do third party. We work with Asset Living. They're based out of Houston too. They're I think the third largest in the country. But you know, just because we third party, we still view them as our people. So we've yeah. put in a lot of custom infrastructure. So we meet with our managers and our regional every Monday morning to go over all the operations. You know, we've got custom Henry bonus structures for all our employees. We take them out and do fun events like a couple months ago, we took them out bowling and gave away 
prizes and raffles and all sorts of stuff like that. And then we've got two meetings, two manager meetings scheduled for May going into leasing season and then November for budget season sort of thing. So so we're very hands-on and we're trying to create our own structure around our management teams, you know, regardless of what asset has or not. They're great. They've been great to work with. We've got a lot of resources at their disposal, but our belief is we never want to rely on anybody, but, you know, us and our team. That's pretty impressive. So do you mind sharing what the bonus structure is and kind of like what are the KPIs and the metrics that you're looking at to bonus out? Yeah, so it's a combination of a few different things, you know, because obviously you want to have everybody incentivized in the right direction. We break it down. It's not just any one thing like, hey, if you maintain 95% occupancy, you get 100% of the bonus. It's not like that. We do. We actually structure it where it's meter exceed our budgeted occupancy, budgeted NOI, income, delinquency, and then resident retention. And there's the discretionary based on you know how we feel the team has worked together over the quarter. So we do quarterly bonuses. And you know after each quarter, we're assessing how they did in each of those areas. And then the percentage for each of those, like for instance, if they hit or exceed their budgeted occupancy, they get 15% of their bonus. If they do for NMY, it's 20, income 10, delinquency is 25, resident retention is 20, and then discretionary is 10. So we've kind of got it broken down in each of those categories. Obviously, if they hit them all, you know, they get 100% of the bonus, which we want them to. But if they, you know, hit some and don't hit others, it's not like they're getting nothing. They're still getting a portion of that bonus, but it's just kind of broken down in each of those categories. Yeah, that seems like enough that you can like really get what we always find is whenever you give bonuses, there's like unintended consequences that happen sometime. It's like someone's trying to game the system so much that they're focused on something. But it sounds like you've got that kind of spread out enough that it really kind of aligns with, you know, what you're interested in. Yeah, 100%. And we make everybody involved. So it's kind of a pool. So it's, you know, the maintenance staff, like, for instance, on make readies, like, you know, and renewals and stuff like that. So for resident retention, like, yeah, just because the inside staff got the tenant to renew their lease and retention went up, well, that maintenance team may have played a big part in that too, because they were on time for their work orders and the resident satisfaction was high from any requests that they had from those. And so we allow the whole team to share in that both inside and outside staff too. Wow. That is really cool. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. So during your weekly management or manager meetings, you know, obviously the managers focus on their bonuses and you said that there's a lot of accountability. How does that accountability 
kind of show up during those meetings? And what do you think is kind of the benefit of that? Yeah, good question. So, you know, first of all, just having a worksheet that they have to fill out, basically the health of the property is, you know, the first step on keeping everybody accountable. Because if you're not you know, we require them to fill it all out and, you know, they've got to know their asset basically in order to do that. And then we've got specific questions in that model, for instance, like if you didn't net positive leases for the week, you know, what's your plan for the next week? So we don't just ask them, you know, Hey, did you net positive or not? And that's the end of it. We want to say, okay, if you're not positive, what's your plan to fix that so that we know that you're actively working on this. And if we notice over time that, you know, it feels like, okay, you're saying things are getting done, but things aren't actually getting done, then maybe we need to make a change. So it helps us identifying those needs. And if our managers are on top of things or if they're not much quicker than before. So, because, you know, especially that manager, they're in control of your asset. And if you don't have the right fit, you need to be able to identify that as quick as possible and get somebody in there that is going to do a good job because, you know, these things are like cruise ships. I mean, you can't just immediately turn it around, especially if you've had a manager that, you know, lowered their criteria standards for leasing, or if they weren't coding income and expenses correctly, like it takes a while to unwind some of the damage that somebody can do. I mean, on one of our assets, once we took over, we ended up having to let that manager go because she just wasn't getting the job done and she was, you know, over her head sort of thing. And it took a while to clean that up. So, you know, by putting some of this infrastructure in place, it helps us identify strengths and weaknesses a lot quicker. And then we can make those decisions of, are you a good fit or not for this property and this team, you know, just lowers overall risk in the deal. Yeah, that, I mean, great operation. It goes back to, you know, trusting your sponsor. And if you're implementing operations, like you say, then it's, yeah, it's way, there's a way higher likelihood that you're going to hit the IRR returns for your investors. It just sounds like you've got stuff systematized, like with this bonus structure that you talked about, like it's very delineated. It seems like it's tried and true now. Like, you know, it definitely seems like you've developed systems to go about making sure that everything's performing correctly. And it's not like just an emotional kind of like, well, I think this is going well. This is more like you are analyzing the data and the data is telling you yes or no, or we need to look into this further, right? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, the big difference between, you know, buying a single family rental and buying a multifamily complex is, you know, you can do single family kind of as a hobby on the side, but multifamily, you're buying a business. And so, you know, the health and strength of any business is dependent upon the systems and processes and people that you have in place. And so we take this extremely seriously. I mean, there's a lot of sponsors out there that, you know, will go and get into multifamily and, you know, kind of relax off the gas pedal and say, well, I'm third partying, you know, it's their job to manage these assets. And we don't think that's the case at all. They're your assets, they're your people. And we just think, you know, we want to be as hands-on as possible to mitigate overall risk. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, I'd like to talk about kind of your team a little bit. I know that you've got a lot of on-site managers that you've talked about that are with the property management company, but kind of what does your team look like with the asset management? And the reason I'm asking is, I mean, my brother and I, we do syndication as well. And we've syndicated probably a little over 150. 100, 150 units. And we're just kind of 
growing. It sounds like you started out with kind of like larger unit counts than we did. And so I'm just kind of curious, like as you've gotten to that like 1200, 1400 kind of unit range, like what sort of how your team started out and then how it grew. Yeah, good question. So, you know, early on, it was for the first few deals, it was just us and I kind of running everything. And then I was making a bunch of trips probably every other week down to Houston to check on things. And, you know, I've got family all over the metro down here too. So I made it easy. I could check on the properties and then go see family sort of thing. But, you know, as we grew, we started to ask the questions, you know, how do we maintain a really hands-on approach with scale? That's always been the question in our minds. So around the third or fourth deal that we did together, we had met a guy who had previous experience working for Camden and Hilltop, two very big groups, very good operators. And we hired him as a part-time asset manager. And you know, we brought him on probably earlier than we needed to. Like I said, around that third or fourth deal, you know, you can probably have, you know, you can run asset managers kind of like regionals at the management level where a regional is over, you know, six to eight properties sort of thing. I'd say six is probably a better number, but so that's kind of our strategy for growth as well is to have asset managers over a half dozen properties in a given location so that, you know, they can check on and make sure our team and our contractors and everything are doing what they should be doing. So we brought him on probably earlier than we needed to, but we also wanted to, you know, get him used to our systems and processes and make sure he was the right fit too. And, you know, everything's turned out great. We're actually about to bring him on full-time as well so that he'll be, you know, his whole job will just be running around all the properties and, you know, making sure everything's going well. And then we've got an assistant as well that kind of helps us on some back-end operations, just managing investors and stuff like that. Because once you get a handful of deals, especially when you got 100, 150 people in each deal, it's a lot to manage for sure. So having some back-end help is you know much needed for sure. But that's really kind of, that's mainly it. And then you know our general contractor, he's a partner on all our deals. He's a key principal and he invests passively too. And so you know he runs all of our construction projects and so forth. Wow. That sounds like a huge partner. I mean, it's a huge piece of the puzzle. We met him. I think he had came to our second networking event when we were just started out in Dallas and we just hit it off immediately. I ended up actually officing with him for a couple of years while I was up there in Dallas and, you know, just a really, really good guy. And, you know, we're typically investing or injecting about ten dollars to $15,000 to door in terms of our rehab on these projects. So they're good sized rehabs and, you know, he's just goes above and beyond for us, especially, but he's just a great guy, really hard worker. And, you know, it helps a lot having a good general contractor on your team, especially when, if you're doing like a bridge loan and you've got, you know, lender draws for all your rehab work, you know, those can be, sometimes they can be easy. Sometimes they can be really, really painful. And, you know, having a good contractor that understands and can be flexible with you really goes a long ways. Wow. So kind of diving into that a little bit, you mentioned you created the brand of, you know, the property, the Henry, and that's something that I've seen people do, but I haven't really heard about, you know, okay, what was the process? How did you go about creating this brand? And I mean, starting out with larger complexes makes it, you know, almost a necessary thing. Obviously you're not doing that on single family homes, but yeah, I'm just interested about the brand and kind of where that shows up, maybe where the general contractor combines in there. 
Sure. You know, we had, you know, initially when we were throwing around the idea of just creating the brand in general, because, you know, some of our goals is we want to be a large operator and, you know, we like to, you know, we think you don't necessarily have to reinvent the wheel, but you can, you know, look to those that have been there and done that and get a lot of great ideas. And so we looked at the groups like, you know, the Camdens, the Cortlands, and kind of, and S2 is probably another one that we looked at quite a bit, you know, how they operated and did their business. And we liked a hybrid model. So S2 creates a unique brand for each of the properties, you know, Camden and Cortland have, you know, Camden and so-and-so. So it was kind of a blend of the two where for us, our strategy is we're going to create a brand for each metro that we're in. So the Henry is our Houston brand. And for Dallas, we'll have our Dallas brand. And, you know, reason being for that is like, you know, Cortland, for example, is bigger in Dallas, but it's not as big down here in Houston. Camden is bigger in Houston. So these brands get known around their metros anyways. And so, you know, that's kind of our strategy is to build a brand, grow it in our portfolio. It allows us from, again, an execution standpoint, especially when we plug in asset managers, they can understand that business plan they're getting plugged into. And that's all they have to think about. And then collectively, it's our family of properties. So we'll have, you know, these different brands around the country, hopefully eventually. But, you know, right now we just have the Henry, which is Houston. And so that's kind of where it all came from was, you know, we're thinking about, you know, how do we systematize things, how to streamline things? You know, we like Momentum as that's our obviously our company name, but it didn't fit a property brand because, you know, when you think about, you know, coming home, you don't think of speeding up, you know, like momentum, gaining progress, right? You come home to somewhere you want to unwind, you want to relax, you want to slow down. And so that's why we didn't use momentum as the brand for the properties, but we're able to still use, still create that same concept under our family of brands that are going to be under the momentum flag. And our audience is, you know, all over the nation or whatnot, but can you describe to us like what the brand is? I mean, I think kind of what my brother may have been getting at is like, I'm assuming that there's like a color scheme and then there's like a certain way that you guys do things with your processes. I think you mentioned events with your residents, like in kind of like maybe a summary, can you kind of tell us what the brand is or how it works? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the Henry is the brand. And then for like, for instance, we have the Henry at Liberty Hills, Henry at Deerbrook the Henry at Rosenberg and the Henry at Jones Road. Those are our four Henrys around Houston right now. So basically from property to property, we just changed the app, you know, based on the location and, you know, what resonates with that submarket. And then from there, you know, we've already got our monument design built out. So all of our monuments look the same that we're putting in all of our branding. We've got a graphic designer that helped put together the brand a guidelines package for the Henry actually. So, you know, anytime our staff, we actually have that him on retainer. So anytime our staff needs like say, Hey, we're going to throw an Easter event for the kids. We're going to do an egg hunt or whatever. They reach out to our graphics designer. He's got all the brand guidelines. He's got that touch and understands marketing and so forth. He creates the design for them, sends it back to the managers and then they can promote it so that it represents the brand. Well, that was another thing that kind of frustrated us for a long time is like, we love our managers and they're great at running these properties, but they're not graphic designers. (laughs) Right. Sometimes sometimes you see some of the stuff that they're putting out there and it's like, man, that doesn't really represent the brand very well. 
So we've figured out ways to navigate that. And then it also gets that stuff off the manager's plate that they don't really need to spend their time doing anyways. So again, it's all about making things efficient, making things streamlined, having processes. All our signage is, you know, around our properties is all very similar. Same colors, like our signature color for that we use on the exterior. We'll, we'll do some like our patio doors and entrance doors to the units. And then we use a splash of color throughout the clubhouses. It's called In the Navy by Sherman Williams. It's our navy blue. And then from there, you know, we use a lot of the similar materials when we're doing like our clubhouse renovations. You know, Earthworks makes a good flooring product that we use. It's kind of a natural tint. Same flooring everywhere. Article is our where we get a lot of our furniture from. So, you know, again, making everything really easy. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. And it's essentially copying and paste at each of these properties. I like that. That makes it seems like it. you've got the decisions down to scale. It's like as you pick up a new property, you've already got this kind of like set of standards and you just go implement that. My next question, though, is like, so the first one that you did, was it you guys doing this or did you hire like an interior designer or kind of like, I mean, how did this like idea kind of come to formation and how did it get started? Yeah, we had the idea. That's where it came from. And then, but, you know, obviously on our side, we're not like graphic designers or interior designers either. So we did have to go and find those resources and that did take some time. So the first one was really kind of the guinea pig. And, you know, for instance, we worked with two interior designers that didn't ultimately work out where we had to scrap their plans and go and find somebody else. Ended up actually finding somebody through Instagram that has been a fantastic fit. And she's done all of our subsequent work. So there was definitely a lot of trial and error, especially in the beginning. As with building any systems, you got to see, hey, what works, what doesn't, who's a fit for us, who's not. Sometimes you just got to roll the dice, try somebody new. If it doesn't work out, you know, figure out how to do it better next time. So, you know, anytime we did run into a hurdle or a roadblock where a vendor or somebody just didn't work out, we tweaked and we kept, you know, trying to, you know, make it better and better over time. And so, you know, we're implementing our fourth execution of this business plan and we're about to do a fifth. So over those last four deals, it's just gotten easier and easier. Awesome. Hayden, what do you think that the brand is like when you're successfully implementing the brand, what do you think that that achieves? Like, what do you think the results are that you're getting from it? Yeah, I think for one, just speed. It speeds up everything. And with multifamily, you know, time is everything here. So the quicker you can implement and start renovating units and executing this business plan, the quicker you can raise that income and that NOI and ultimately pass that benefit down to your investors. So for one, you know, it makes things a lot faster. Two, it just, again, it streamlines everything. Like our contractor, we're not doing something totally different from our last project. So our contractor knows, okay, you know, I've got the guidelines, I've got the understanding, you know, I know the designer will give me the plans that I need to go out and bid and understands the process that we're getting into here. So everybody's a lot more on the same page. So that helps a ton, especially when you're talking, you know, multi-million dollar rehabs and renovation projects. It accomplishes a lot. And then on top of that, we've had, it's really cool because we're starting to get it noticed around Houston. So we've had residents come into some of our properties and say, hey, is this just like the other Henry, you know, down the road? And so it's building the reputation of the brand. And ultimately too, you know, part of our thinking behind developing the brand was if we can establish and develop a good reputation with our brand and we share lots of progress pictures and stuff on social media, 
when we go to sell those properties, they're going to know, oh, okay, the momentum guys really cared about those properties and operated them well, renovated them well. You know, you're buying a good business. And so we can potentially justify a higher sales price too. So that's another part of our process. And then on top of that, you can package them up in a portfolio, say, hey, we, you know, we'll have about 850 units in the Northeast side of Houston that we could eventually potentially package that up and say, hey, you can move into this growing pocket of Houston at scale. And that's going to expand our buyer pool too. So it works for just a lot of different reasons. That was going to be my next question is, so when you do like dispose of an asset or one of these assets or whatnot, like what happens to the brand or have you guys run into that yet or thought about it? We haven't sold yet one of our Henry's, but we would strip it of the brand so that we can protect the integrity of it. So we want to control it. You know, it was kind of interesting. The first property we bought, it's called the Henry at Liberty Hills in Houston. It's a 228 unit deal built in 2012. We bought it from a group called Sync Residential. And that kind of gave us a taste of that because as soon as we took over, they stripped everything of Sync. And so we're like, oh, that's, you know, that's interesting because obviously they cared about their brand. They didn't want somebody else operating a Sync property. And so, you know, that's kind of where that gave us that idea. And, you know, once we go to sell, that's what we would do as well. Nice. And so you guys bought your first property in 2019 or 2020? We got on our contract in Q4 of 2020 and actually closed on it January 21. Okay. And so you're going on two years on that first property. And <laughs> what's your, I guess, business plan and disposition plan for your first one? Yeah, it's going well. We're pretty much wrapped up with all the renovations. We just got, you know, we're in the process of getting pool furniture and stuff like that. But it's gone really, really well. We painted the exterior, we renovated the clubhouse, we've updated units, added a whole bunch of amenities to a courtyard that was just grass, added two dog parks, fire pit with strung lights, hammocks, and then a full outdoor kitchen kind of adjacent to the pool. So it was a really fun project. And currently, you know, we like that pocket. Like I said, the northeast part of Houston is just growing a lot. It's kind of the last corridor of Houston that hasn't really been built out. So Everything out there is, you know, pretty much new. So we like that we're in the path of progress. And, you know, for us, we'd rather probably hold longer term. So, you know, if it does make sense down the line to sell, if somebody wants to pay just a stupid amount, we're, we'd be open to that too. But, you know, overall, we, you know, if it's doing well and, you know, the assets in a good spot, we'd like to hold. Do you have plans for a refinance or... Well, you know, it's an interesting time. So we're looking at options, but we'll probably get a little bit more serious about a refinance probably later in the year. Now is not a great time for anybody to (laughs) refinance. Clearly, whatever rates are. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, we've been watching it real closely though. It's got a Freddie Mac loan. It is a floater. We had a really tight cap on our interest rate that's set to expire February of 24. So we are going to have to do something. The thing that probably makes the most sense for us, and we're tracking obviously very closely what the Fed is doing right now, but you know, it looks like rates are going to come down sooner rather than later sort of thing. So most likely what we'll do is probably just purchase an extension on our interest rate cap and continue to hold for better times. So that's kind of where we're at. We track Pensford very closely. JP Conklin puts out a lot of great information over there. And then you can also kind of Chatham also has some really cool tools on their website to track the Fed forward curve, and then also the price of those interest rate caps. And so, you know, based on everything we've, all the data, you know, as soon as they pause, 
hiking rates within three months as interest rate caps are historically fall by 50%. And then over seven months, I think it's 75%. So should start seeing, we've already seen the cost of interest rate caps starting to come down. We get a, we actually get every morning, we get a valuation of our current hedges. So we can see the fluctuation in our current values of our caps. And I mean, just from last week to this morning, I think it dropped like 75 grand of the value of that existing hedge we have on that deal. So, so we're watching it pretty closely, but you know, we'll probably either refinance or buy an extension on the interest rate cap, you know, probably later in the year. Very interesting. Well, we are about 50 minutes in. It's been an amazing conversation, but it's time for our last four questions. Great. Well, I will start us off with the first one, which is what's one piece of advice you would give your 25-year-old self? Yeah, good question. I'd say, you know, just be patient because that's about when I was getting started when I was 25. I'm 28 right now, about to be 29. And so, you know, that led to a lot of frustration was just, you know, looking at everybody around me, seeing them do deals and getting frustrated that it wasn't happening as quick as I wanted to. And so, you know, I think if you're going to save yourself a lot of stress and anxiety and worry, just tell yourself, you know, be patient. If you really want to do this as your career, you know, you'll find a way you'll make it happen. But, you know, the buried entry is high and it, it may take some time. So just be patient, focus on, you know, taking it day by day and really just surround yourself with good people and it'll work out. Yeah. I love that. Be patient. Okay. And our second question, what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? Yeah, I'd say, you know, taking it back to working with my dad, you know, that was kind of the first time as a teenager that it really exposed me to it. And I think developed that mindset of, if you have an idea, you can go out and create it, make it happen. You know, it was cool to see him say, hey, you know, I want to start a project and just go and get something, pick up the tools and figure it out along the way, you know, and it's just been incredible to have had that experience to be a part of it. And I think that's really where it developed that entrepreneurial mindset in me was just from working with him at a very, very early age. So when he was like, hey, Hayden, we're going to go work this weekend. How did you initially react? <laughs> yeah, it's I didn't mind it just because from that learning, you know, I think I was just a curious kid. It was fun to just to figure out how things worked and get to see floors tore up and walls. You know, we would, you know, blow out walls, expand rooms. And, you know, we worked on a house. Actually, he moved out to Pennsylvania for a year or two and we redid a like late 1800s house up in Pennsylvania. And it was just super cool to see how they built things. You know, the nails were square and, you know, you'd have live edges on the studs in the walls and that side of it just, you know, it was pretty cool. It was exciting to kind of see, you know, how people built things and how stuff works. And so, you know, sometimes on certain like busting up tile is no fun or carpet, (laughs) you know, the tax strip on a, on a room for carpet is so it's painful to take up, but you know, overall, you know, it was fun working with him and getting to kind of figure out how stuff worked. Very cool. That's super fun. Our dad was a lot of the same way, just doing projects and grabbing us and being like, Hey, you're going to come see how this is done. I remember we were building our house over in Tucson and he's like, we need to go check the plumbing and make sure they put it in the ground right before they pour the concrete slab. Otherwise it's really hard to fix. And so we're going to go just double check this. 
It was just, you know, kind of interesting to see how things work before you start putting down concrete and all sorts of stuff. But all right, next question. How has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Yeah, I'd say a lot of mine's been informal, <laughs> I would say, to say the least. You know, just learning by experience is, is a great teacher. And then, you know, I'm super grateful to my partner, Dustin. He's really been my more formal teacher just learning along the way. So the cool thing about multifamily is, you know, it's not rocket science at the end of the day, you know, you're dealing with people, you know, you're dealing with, you know, all the basic same stuff. So if you can renovate a house, you can understand, you know, the process of renovating apartment complex. It's just at scale. So, you know, it's not an overly complicated business. It is tough to get into. It is, you know, you definitely got to take it very seriously, but you know, Dustin's been my mentor and really trained me quite a bit. And so, you know, there's a lot of great coaching programs and stuff like that out there. They're pretty pricey. I'd say they definitely can get you there a little faster, but you know, that's not the only option you have to take to get in the door. Cause I didn't go through any formal training program or anything like that. I just had a partner that kind of had been there, done that and some experience on the construction side of things. So, so yeah, you can make it work either way for sure. That is awesome. Okay. And over, I mean, you started in 2019. So over that career, what do you think was your biggest mistake and what did you learn? Yeah, good question. You know, fortunately we haven't ran into too many issues. I'd kind of go back to that, you know, idea of just be patient because I remember just getting started out in 2019, in 2020, being so frustrated sometimes because you know, things weren't happening the way I intended them or had envisioned them. It took a lot longer. It was a lot harder and, you know, caused a lot of unneeded stress and anxiety. I'd say that was probably my biggest mistake. If I would have had to go out again, because it was, you know, it was challenging sometimes to keep going forward and you've got to continue to motivate yourself and keep pressing on when you have no idea when that deal is going to actually come to fruition. And that's probably the most challenging part about this because, you know, even if you get an offer accepted lead time to actually close that deal is probably going to be another three months. So you've got to have a very long, you know, time horizon is this stuff doesn't come together in an instant. And then, you know, it would be challenging and very difficult, especially when you get close to winning a deal, but you end up getting second or third in this business. That means absolutely nothing. So you could first, spend months loser, of effort. Right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, you can spend a ton of time, months, literally, you know, developing a business plan, underwriting a deal, making sure it's one you want to pursue and put an offer in on to get beat out just brutally. So it's a competitive business. It's very tough to get started, but Again, that's why, you know, just belief in yourself and your team and reinforcing, you know, you can make it happen. Just being patient, I think is so important. So going through that period again, if you could, how would you cope with the stress of and kind of that anxiety you were mentioning? Yeah, I think just having more and more mental practices that you have throughout the day, like a big thing for me that I've incorporated is journaling every morning. And then on top of that, before I get a workout in, I'm reading, so stimulating my mind, those sorts of things. And then just learning more about, you know, doing a lot of introspection, learning about yourself, your thoughts, the values and implications that those thoughts have, I think is super important. And what I would put more and more of an emphasis on, because, you know, I'm a big believer, I kind of view your thoughts and your mind as a magnet, what, you know, what you put out there, what you spend time focusing on is drawing those experiences closer to you. 
And, you know, so focusing a lot more on the positive side of things and what you want to create versus what you don't want to create or are currently experiencing. So, you know, I think I would say that is super important and has helped me a lot personally. And if I were to go back, I would spend a lot more time, especially, in, you know, when that offer fell through or you ended up getting that call from the brokers that, sorry, you didn't make it, you know, focusing more on those sorts of things rather than, you know, just the expectations that you have going into it. Well, thank you. That's awesome. (laughs) Hayden, it's been a lot of fun having you on. Yeah. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would you like them to reach out? Sure. Yeah. Our website's just MomentumMultifamily.com. And then, you know, if you want to shoot me an email, it's just Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N at MomentumMultifamily.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today and sharing your experiences with us. I know that I learned a lot. I'm sure that you did too, Chris. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. I appreciate it guys. Again, just really appreciate the invite and, you know, the time to be on the show today. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.